Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Cassia and I spoke with Julia Kelly, who is an author of romance fiction. Her first book, One Week in Wyoming, was published in 2014, and in the four years since then, she has published a prolific 10 books. So Julia was completely fascinating about um, the world of historical women's fiction and romance, which is something that neither Simon or I knew much about. But it does have some very sort of novel features, including um, how avid the readers are and how loyal the readership is, and also how you promote uh, and use social media to um, grow your audience. Um, So it's really well worth listening to. So Julia, great to uh, be with you here this evening. Could you tell us a little bit first of all about your uh, early interest in writing and and how you, what motivated you to take the paths that you did? Sure. So I um, have been writing for as long as I can remember, which I think is probably a common theme that's come up throughout your talking to various authors. Um, As a kid, was always scribbling away and kind of had some aspirations to write a book at some point. Never really stuck with anything. I found Mm -hmm. that. Getting to, getting to the point where I had an idea and then I followed through with it was always difficult. So yeah. around the twenty thousand word mark, mm. you'd start to lose interest, and suddenly it would you know end up on a hard drive somewhere, just not being ever looked at again. So you got that far with with different drafts. Yeah, I did. When I was in college, I was trying to trying to figure out something that I wanted to write, and actually it was when I was in graduate school in in New York at Columbia that I sort of reached max capacity with my master's project and all my classwork, and I was just feeling very creatively tapped. And we should say again, in full disclosure, that Julia and I were at graduate school together. <laughs> yes, Columbia. yes. So upfront about that. You, uh, you understand the pain of the master's, the master's project. And um, I was spending hours in a radio lab. It was a radio documentary. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember coming home one night and just sitting on the sofa and thinking... I can watch more Dancing with the Stars, which is sort of my default Mm. of I can't think anymore and I don't have anything, or I can try to find something creative that I can put a different side of my brain towards. And so I started writing, and I've been a romance reader since I was probably too young to be a romance reader. Um, and it what, was, what do you think the appropriate age threshold is? Oh, whenever somebody's ready to pick up one of those books, I think they should. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I was probably 12 or 11, um, mm. which was yeah, maybe arguably too early. But I think a lot of people find books like that when, you know, between the, the over-the-top covers that were mm. popular in the 90s, the 80s and 90s, to, you know, when you're a kid, I think anything that has... Anything remotely sexy or salacious seems really forbidden. Mm-hmm. And even if, you know, you go back and read something 10, 15, 20 years later and you think that's really not that scandalous. So, um, yeah, I've been I've been reading for a long time and I just thought, you know, this is something I enjoy and it's very escapist and I'm mm. going to, you know, I always thought I might be able to do it. And so I started writing um graduated and got a job and sort of picked up the book, put it down, picked it up, put it down. And you were working years. in journalism. And I was working in journalism, right. So mm-hmm. I was a television news producer, and I was on you know every shift up and down the clock, mornings, nights, weekends, holidays, mm-hmm. all of that. So and Julia, just to explain to our listeners, you're, you're American, but you spend a lot of time in the UK. Correct. Well. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So I was, you know, I was kind of at the point where I needed to make a decision about the book, whether I was actually going to stick with it or not. So I decided it was something I wanted to do. I was going to see if I could finish a draft. And so I sat down and, and finished the book around, I think it was 2000, 2011, 2012, my mm-hmm. timeline isn't the clearest sometimes because I 
have trouble remembering what happened when, but I uh, finished the book, revised it, and went out to an agent. So that's sort of when I decided to really mm. make this a career, and uh, I decided I was going to have to kind of be serious about this or, um, or you know, abandon ship and decide that I was going to do something else with my time. Um, and yeah, I, I got an agent through cold querying and it's sort of, we've been together ever since and it's not been a smooth path to publishing. I think most people find that it, it can be difficult, especially with fiction, um, and genre fiction and trying to hit the right moment in the market and find Mm -hmm. the right publisher. Um, but yeah, it's, that's what I've been doing since. Did you find it difficult? Did you have kind of a, a favorite, uh, type of, uh, this kind of um, fiction when you were you know b- starting to read them and, and, and enjoying reading them did yeah. you have a particular kind that you really enjoyed reading and is that what you kind of consciously tried to to imitate when you first started um, writing? Yeah so I, I was attracted to historical romance mm-hmm. I've always loved history it was what I studied in college I did all my my work around Victorian British sexual history which mm-hmm. actually ties in nicely with what I was writing about so um that was always the area that I sort of focused my attention on. And um, I've done some contemporary work also, and I've, I've done, now I'm doing um, historical women's fiction, which has a contemporary and a historical timeline kind of interweaving um, with each other. But it's always come back to that to that historical um, side of things. So and that's could, what I Could I'm, you tell us a bit about how the world of, of romance fiction works? What absolutely. are the different areas in it? You know, how, give us a, a tour de horizon of that. Sure. So romance is a is a really big umbrella term for a lot of different types of, of books. So it's mm-hmm. genre fiction. Which is romance means, the right word? Yes, yeah. it is. Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's, it's genre fiction, which means that the reader going into it knows that they are going to get two things out of out of a romance novel. They're going to get a happily ever after, so you know, an ending where the couple ends up together, and that the book is going to focus primarily on the developing relationship between two mm-hmm. people. In the same way that if you pick up a mystery, you know that there's going to be a puzzle, and at the end you're going to have some sort of satisfying knowledge that the puzzle's been solved. Right? Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean that that the the villain's always caught at the end, but you know yeah. what happened. So same idea. And within romance, there are all these different subcategories. So you have historical romance, um, which tends to focus, traditionally has focused on, uh, you know, the Regency era, the Victorian era, although there are a lot of different areas Mm -hmm. of of romance and a lot of people are trying to push into some different time periods that have been kind of neglected. Um, There is contemporary romance, which is everything from, uh, you know, sports romance that focuses primarily on heroes that are sports, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. that are athletes, all the way through to what are called small town contemporary. So lots of world building, Mm -hmm. lots of interconnected characters, um, you kind of get a little bit of everything. And there's, you know, paranormal, which which ties into sci-fi. There's everything, you know, if you're looking for really high heat level, there's erotic romance. Mm-hmm. So you get kind of a big, uh, vast choice of what type of romance And it's like a massive for. world in terms of the number Huge. of these books mm-hmm. published books. and number sold and things as well, right? Yeah, it's, a, it's more than a billion-dollar industry. And okay. so it's, it's, I believe... I'm sorry, my phone. Um, it is... It's a more than a billion dollar industry, and it. Uh, Is that English language? That's or, or, I believe that's or, English language, yeah. and um, there are some fantastic numbers that the Romance Writers of America, mm-hmm. our sort of uh, trade association, our guild, um, has pulled together over the years, looking at readership and looking at um, 
who who's reading these books, how much these books are making, what part of the market they're making up. And it's it's a really serious business. And I mm-hmm. think the unfortunate thing about romance is, you know, it's it's written by women. It's written primarily for women. A lot of the editors are women. Mm-hmm. It doesn't get taken seriously in the way is that it some other is. exclusively by women? Ooh. Not exclusively, yeah. but primarily by women. Yeah. Um, there are absolutely some men who are mm-hmm. doing very, very well in romance, but you see a lot of women uh, women authors. So, for instance, if I were to go to a conference, it's just mm. almost wall-to-wall women. Mm. And it's fascinating. It's a very... It makes for sometimes a very inclusive, uh, very supportive, very um, interesting dynamic because you have this space that feels very safe to a lot of people. And it's an industry that's not without some issues. There are absolutely issues of diversity and inclusion, mm. um, sure. but it does feel very, very woman-forward, which is really exciting. I've got a couple of questions. Um, the first one is, could you talk about sort of the, the giants um, in the industry in terms of the kind of the big brand names? Mm-hmm. Um, and then could you also talk a little bit about um, also the big names in terms of the, the writers? Sure, absolutely. So the kind of um, the biggest, probably most recognizable is Harlequin, mm-hmm. which in this country with Mills and Boone was, okay, was yeah. purchased by Harlequin. Mm-hmm. So I think when a lot of people, when I tell people I'm a romance author here, they always ask, are you writing Mills and Boone? And mm-hmm. no, I'm not, but... You know, that's the same. They're thinking in the right direction. So yeah. um, there's also... And is Harlequin an independent firm? Or does it belong it is. to one of the big uh, I believe it's still independent. It, okay. I have to admit that sometimes mm. publishers and imprints buy each other up and I'm, I feel behind. Sure. But, um, it's hard to keep up at the moment. Very hard to keep up. <laughs> and especially with digital lines mm. being subsumed and all of that. Um, there's Avon, which is a, an American company, and uh, they are famous for having put out some of the really big hitters, especially in, in the early years of, of what we would think of as modern romance. So, um, you know, the 80s and 90s, they had some of the big... Is that the kind of birth date of the genre? What, what changes between then and what's being published? Yeah, so the before? 70s are, I think, what we more traditionally um, believe to be uh, the the birth of, of mm. the genre, as okay. we would think of it now. But there is a transition that happens in a lot of of the books that are sort of quote-unquote old-school romance, Mm. you do get more of what people think of when they think of bodice rippers, right? So a lot of more questionable sexual scenarios where somebody's being forced to do something Mm. that they might not choose, but it's okay because there's an orgasm at the end, and Mm. so, you know, everything is fine after that. Um, You start to see in the 80s and 90s a lot more reflection on on women making major choices within relationships, women holding down jobs and balancing out that with the relationship and the book. So it kind of opens up the world of the heroines. And I think that's when you really get into what we would consider more modern romances. Mm. Consent becomes a really, really important thing, especially once you're in this, I'd say, in the in the aughts and uh, in this era. Uh, consent is a really big point of, of conversation amongst romance authors. And it's not a big surprise that that's been a, a big focus in the last few years also with all of the... Me yeah. Too movement and, you well, know. We, yeah, we wanted to ask you about that. I mean, in terms of um, readership, this is a, a genre that's known for having a very um, loyal readership. Mm-hmm. Is that something you're very conscious of, um, both as a, a reader and now as a, a writer, this kind of very... Um, people who have very particular tastes and, and are very loyal to to one particular writer or a couple of different writers. Yeah, so the wonderful thing about romance writers, and uh, or romance readers, I should say, and... It, the market bears this up is that they're voracious and mm. they read widely and they they tend to read widely outside of romance also but 
absolutely. There are sort of what's mm. called one-click buy authors, right? So your auto buys. So if somebody comes up, for instance, Tessa Dare is a big name amongst historical romance. So if Tessa Dare announces that she has a new book, her loyal fans will, without even reading the synopsis, mm. automatically buy her on Amazon. And or how much of these these writers' uh, reputations are they are they? created by word of mouth or are there big marketing spends and things like that? It really depends on on the author and the publisher um, but a lot of it is word of mouth and a lot of it is you know people discovering through through blogs and through Twitter and Facebook and romance readers once they find each other tend to talk a lot and um, so there's a lot of recommendations flying around and and I think a lot of the discovery happens that way. Um, and the whole sort of technology piece, what was, I mean, are your books primarily ebooks or are they print books? Or how does that, both for your experience and what's mm-hmm. going on more generally? So, so, my, uh, so I publish with Simon & Schuster. I'm mm-hmm. with uh, Pocket Star, which is a digital imprint of Simon & Schuster, specifically looking at, at genre fiction. Okay. Um, and that is, so I've had... And was that with you with them from the start? Yes, exactly. I did some independent publishing Mm -hmm. um, just to try to learn the business, gain an audience, set up all the things that I needed to, you know, learn in terms of editing and how that works. But really, Simon & Schuster, I think, is is where I Mm -hmm. would consider the the most people would have known me from um, and where I really started building my audience. So I did seven e-books with them. So those are e-books, no paperback. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I have my first... uh, paperback and ebook simultaneous release coming out in the fall and that's actually historical fiction um, what's called historical women's fiction so under the same imprint under a different imprint okay, so it's under right. gallery books right. yeah. is that part of Simon Schuster as well it is and it's actually my same editor from, okay. uh, from the line it, and she's wonderful and uh, did yeah. she suggest trying out for, for a different imprint and different style or was that a choice that you <laughs> consciously made so actually um, she I was in New York last September for a wedding and I went and had lunch with her with my agent and we sort of got through lunch and it's you know mm-hmm. these are lovely they're more relationship building than they are actual business getting done but she did say before dessert was served she said okay we have to talk about something and I thought oh god I'm getting dropped (laughs) like this is terrible and she said no you know we've decided that we're going to pull up some of our romance authors we'd really like them to write uh, women's fiction and really Mm -hmm. try to do a trade paperback and do a whole you know use your your experience and use your area of writing and uh, and have you write something a little different and write for for gallery which is one of their um, their big trade paperback lines so um, I was thrilled it's it's mm. nice having especially working at the clip that I've worked at the last two years yeah it's nice having a change and it's nice getting to write something a little different and have a little bit of a different process mm. and so you've written seven novels since eight. 2008 novels since, <laughs> since 2011. No, I've written eleven novels since two thousand eleven, but some of them, some of those were novellas. Mm. So it sort of okay. depends on how you're counting the numbers. And so, how how are these things framed in terms of length and mm-hmm. stuff like that? Yeah. Is there sure? So the novellas are short. They're okay. um, let me think. They're around twenty five to thirty thousand mm. words. Um, the the books that are published by Simon and Schuster range from forty five thousand, so still on the shorter side, yeah. to eighty five thousand words. Okay. Um, and most recently, it's been uh, mm. it's been the longer, the full length titles, mm. what we would call full length. So, titles. Had, did the e reader and the Kindle and so forth did that completely 
change this world of, yes. of fiction house. In, in what way? Yeah. Well, romance is really, I, I think, what most people would argue the reason that Kindle and and e-readers mm. became this massive, um, you know, part of the business because again, romance readers read and they read fast, mm. and so they were whipping through books, and suddenly, you know, you have the boom of of indie publishing when you have the accessibility of um, not only the e-readers and the ability to download books, but then. Um, Amazon made it possible to publish and made it possible to go a different route than the traditional publishing route. So you see the rise of, uh, you know, publishing through iBooks and uh, through Kindle's KDP program, um, through Kobo's Writing Life program, and, uh, you know, there are other draft-to-digital, some people publish through Google Google Play. So you're able to get your books into the hands of people who then have a need for them, you know, for them because they're reading them so Mm. quickly. Uh, So that's, I have friends who make a very comfortable living um, through independent publishing, and it's really because of, of the fact that they're romance authors and they they know the market and they know how to market to the readers and the readers are loyal and they develop those relationships. It's it's been an incredible few years watching that happen. In this kind of um, in the kind of classic romance um, scheme, are there particular narrative um, you know rhythms that you have to, to hit to in order to mm-hmm. um, satisfy the, the genre? It really depends on what you're writing. So I think. Um, I think it's probably important to say that romance can be anything from so sweet that all the couple does is hold hands and maybe kiss mm. on the last page to full on, you know, nothing is, is there's no euphemisms used, everything's very explicit. And so I think there's, there's a heat level that you're dealing with. Right? Is the happy ending non-negotiable? The happy ending is not negotiable. And some people have tried to challenge that. There's something called a happy for now, Mm. where maybe it's a question of whether they'll stay together in the past, but I think, or in the future rather, but I think that for a lot of people... That's why they're reading it. That's why they're reading it. They want the emotional satisfaction of, of having reached the end of the book, and you have that kind of, that hit of, you know, I'm so happy to see these two people get get together I'm emotionally invested in it and so you know I got I got the book that I wanted mm. just like with a romantic comedy if you watch you know rom- mm. romantic comedy you know that the couple's going to get together at the end mm. and you have that kind of that happy sigh moment at the very mm. end of the of the movie well the reason I asked is because my um, first experience with with romance novels was discovering a cache of 1970s <laughs> Mills and Boone yes um, in the house where I grew up and mm-hmm. instead of um, revising for my GCSEs I got through all of these and they in terms of plots they were very they were identical yeah and so I wondered whether um, the different kind of you now talk about different subgenres, mm-hmm. whether they have their own narrative demands where you know the reader not only knows they're getting you know a certain a, a happy ending but they also know that there's going to be kind of a crisis moment and that's going to yes. come around two thirds of the way through yep. um, and, and, and whether that sort of still holds true and you know how that um, yeah, how that kind of works on you as a, as a writer knowing that you, you've got this very mm-hmm. particular arc so I think there, there are two things working there one mm. is structure and one are tropes right mm. so the structure of a romance novel is pretty straightforward and there are people who twist it and play with it really expertly and it's mm. it's wonderful to see it happen but you kind of in a lot of books you know you're going to hit certain points right so you have a meet cute you have mm-hmm. to get your characters together right and what's the technical term for that a meet cute a meet cute yeah it's an old Hollywood term for okay. um, I believe it was the screwball comedies in the 1930s yeah. They talked about rom-com. getting, yeah, rom coms. You mm. get the characters together. Because so. I heard that, yeah, I was listening to a podcast about rom coms. But what is the exact phrase? Meet cute. Meet cute. Meet cute. Okay. Yeah. 
Like, okay. it's cute when these two people... Oh, right, okay. Yeah. <laughs> M- so, M- M- that needed much more explanation. M-double-E-T. Yes, yes, right, exactly. not M-E-A-T, okay. No, that would be very different. Um, yeah. So... More zombie. Yeah, which, yeah. actually, there is zombie romance, so there you go. Oh, that's um, nice. <laughs> yeah, I haven't read much of it, so I can't tell you my, any recommendations. But um, So you have your meet-cute, you have your characters get together. There's always some sort of tension about why they can't be together, and romance mm. is very internally motivated so in some of them you don't have a huge amount of plot development because really who's the people who are driving the story are the two main characters right so and is, is it is it generally still true that the the character that you'll mostly be dealing with is is the woman actually now you get a pretty even split usually okay. between male and female perspective if you're looking at heterosexual romance and um, does the narrator have that kind of omniscient access to the inner lives of all the characters because I was reading mm. the um, the one about the sports agent yes that you sent over. and you know we start off with, with her perspective yeah. but then suddenly we're like three pages in we're in his head as well right and, right. and so you know is right. that usually the that omniscience extends across the so you typically characters. stay with a character within a section mm. or, or a chapter but then yeah. you'll flip between mm-hmm. the two characters. Right. And there are absolutely some people who are just writing in one perspective. I, I read an Emma Chase novel uh, the other day where it's all in the male perspective. Mm. Or, you know, there are other people who write all in the, the female perspective. But typically you'll get some back and forth and you kind of get these two people and they're reasoning why they can't be together. And then inevitably something happens and they end up sleeping together and then everything looks good and then suddenly, you know, something tears them apart. Is there like the a conflict. defined time frame it's got to run over? Like, yes, so there's, it depends it, on how close you adhere to, to um, you know, the structure that's often laid out. Actually, a lot of people use a system called Save the Cat, which is a screenwriting, um, a screenwriting Yeah, it came up system. in another interview we did with, with Laura Palmer, who, oh, okay, who's, a, sure. who's a genre fiction editor, and she said that she she asks her, if she's got a novelist in trouble, she gets them to read mm-hmm. Save the Cat. Can you, can you explain it? For... Sure, yeah. Save the Cat basically gives you uh, story structure, and I think it's 12 what are called beats, so certain mm. things that you know that you're going to hit throughout that manuscript. So you can actually watch a movie most of the time and say okay I think you know we're at how many minutes through this movie I think we're Mm going to get the dark moment which Mm -hmm. is when everything seems so terrible and the characters get torn apart and you think there's no hope left and then inevitably there's a there's an uplift again Mm -hmm. and the characters end up where they're supposed to be so in this case with romance they end up together Mm -hmm. so they there's sort of the the being apart, the coming together, the splitting apart, and then the final resolution is them being together, and presumably for for the rest of their lives. But you know, obviously, we leave them at some point. So, and I am um, I used to uh, date a woman who wrote her undergraduate thesis on on bodice rippers. So I don't mm-hmm. know if that's a separate genre, but and I may I may be mischaracterizing here, but she explained to me that she felt the way they were built was on a on a on a, like a multi way power transaction, in that there was the like the heroine who gets you know, kidnapped by pirates or whatever. Sure. Or, but there is an initial position of seemingly limited power and the power is with the male protagonists. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they hook up and then a, a, a reverse power transaction occurs because the pirate or whatever falls in love with the maiden and that the power ends up with the woman. And she felt that was the kind of narrative drive that was pushing a lot of this stuff is, is that would you agree with that or I think that... in a lot of books that's the case yeah. I, this is a genre that absolutely still has the alpha male as a very central part of of a lot of books and they're not all of them and I've certainly written characters who are not alpha males but in a lot of cases there is a, an element of 
he needs to be brought down to a place where he's emotionally open enough to be committed to a relationship. And that's a place of vulnerability. Mm. So really what you're looking at is you're looking at two characters who are allowing themselves to be vulnerable. And I think in a lot of cases, what a lot of readers are drawn to is, is the male vulnerability, right? It's this very raw, very open place. Um, and it's very satisfying when then, you know, these characters come together because you have both of them in a place where their their vulnerability becomes actually a point of strength. But I think the power dynamic is a really interesting point, and you mm. do absolutely see that with a lot of books. Because I read I read the the beginning of the other one, the Scottish mm-hmm. one as well, um, and I didn't read to the end. But I was I was very interested the the, the sort of reprobate guy, Sir Keir, mm-hmm. whatever. I was trying to kind of game this out in my head, and I was like, is he is he going to be rehabilitated? Like, because because also on what we were touching earlier, he did seem a little bit kind of rapey. Um, oh yeah, the, so the he's beginning. not the hero. Okay. He's he's a device to get them together essentially. Mm. Okay. Um, so it's it's speaking to the tropes that we mm. we alluded to earlier. Um, there are certain tropes within romance, things that you commonly see, and you see this across genre fiction, right? So you see the the grizzled detective who has an alcohol problem and mm. has no ability to have human relationships, but is a is a brilliant detective. Yeah. In romance, you see a lot of things. So for that book in particular, it's a marriage of convenience. So the two characters are friends beforehand. It's also a friends to lovers book. So they're friends beforehand, something happens, and because of the social social conve- conventions of the day, she has to end up marrying somebody because she's essentially been ruined. Mm. And so uh, the hero steps in and, and takes that role on. He becomes the husband, but he's, you know, again, in one of these friends to lovers books, he has been in love with her for years and years. So it's this okay. source of tension that he doesn't want to ruin the friendship, but at the same time, he's married to this woman now who he mm. feels very strongly about, and he doesn't believe that she's there. And she isn't there at the beginning of the book, but she gets there in the end. And so you have that that happy resolution within that marriage, that it's not just this kind of convenience, it's it's actually a full, uh, an actual marriage. Mm. I think this brings a sort of quite a nice segue into um, one of the things that we wanted to speak about, which is you brought up a little bit earlier in terms of um, diversity and how um, the genre has responded to um, issues of diversity and also the, the Me Too movement and, and all mm-hmm. this kind of stuff. Can you talk a little bit more about that and um, what it's doing right in response to, to these concerns and also how much um, ground there is still left to cover? I think there's a lot of ground left to cover, um, and I think that there are some women who are doing wonderful, wonderful work. Um, Alicia Rye and Alyssa Cole, in particular, are really uh, strong advocates for diversity in romance, and they're both women of color who are writing and writing brilliant books, just absolutely fantastic, and they're getting attention and they're they're putting attention onto these issues as well as other things that they're they're talking about, and you know everything from Alyssa's a friend, so mm-hmm. she talks about everything from you know intersectionality and feminism to um, she just found a kitten in her garden. So, you know, she's been tweeting a lot of photos of the kitten. <laughs> so it's it's sort of, um, I think that there's a lot that publishing still has to do. And, and a lot of that comes down to um, taking on books by authors of color about characters of color. It's um, having people in the editing process and the acquiring process who are people of color, who understand, mm-hmm. you know, that, that diversity is important and representation is important. It's all the way down to, you know, the art department and the publisher, the booksellers. It, the, mm-hmm. the industry as a whole has been very white for a very long time. And a lot of the, the conventional thinking is that you can't sell books with people of color in them or on the covers and that's just not true and that's been proven over and over again not to be true but the industry takes a long time to get there uh, I mean it seems interesting you know I haven't read as much of the stuff as I, I you know should to comment broadly on it but it seems that a lot of these books are pushing pretty traditional 
gender roles and gender interactions to you. As you said, very alpha male, mm-hmm. stuff like that. What does it, you know, the enormous popularity of these books at the same time that there is this, this whole discussion about relationships between men and women and so forth. What, what do you think that says? So I mean, it's been, it's been, you know, suggested elsewhere, I think, that, you know, the fact that Fifty Shades of Grey sold nine bazillion copies at a time when there was, you know, also this whole huge conversation about how, you know, relationships between men and women and so forth suggested there was something of a disconnect, right, between yeah. maybe what we say and what we feel. I think Fifty Shades of Grey is a really problematic book. I will never knock it fully because it got people into the mm. genre, and I'm very thankful for that because people are supporting me and my writing now because they entered by you know reading Fifty Shades of Grey. Mm. And I think you should read what you want to read. I sure. have no problems with that at all. I think Fifty Shades is problematic in that there are issues of consent, there are issues of um, you know a really stalkery mm. style relationship. You know, there it's it's to me feels like a very abusive relationship. In terms of the traditional gender roles and things like that, I think there's absolutely some reinforcement in romance. But I think that where romance is doing something really interesting that's really subversive is it's putting a lot of emphasis on female pleasure and female choice in relationships. So women are driving the relationships. They're making choices about whether they do or do not want to be in relationships. and they're Even when they get like tied to the mast? Well, see, that's the thing. Those books really don't get published anymore because oh, really? those are very, very old school, mm-hmm. um, older mentality okay, to those books. So so really, I mean, when I, when I write, I make sure... Consent is very explicit, mm-hmm. and she has choices that she's making in the relationship, and and she's making those choices because they're the right choices for her. I suppose is there is there a risk that you know the the soul could kind of be ripped out of this genre, which brings huge pleasure to huge numbers of people, by trying to make it sort of too po faced and stuff like that, right? I mean, I, there's always a risk, yeah. but I think at the same time. You you write and you write well and you know mm. you give readers what they're looking for. And I think in, it's a spectrum, not a mm-hmm. you know. You, I I think it's not a sort of TikTok thing. And presumably you're getting feedback from your readers that this. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you get feedback from your readers that they want that they um, that they have sort of certain desires in terms of the the power dynamics between the characters or the the traditionalism? Yeah, I think I've so I've had feedback from my readers in terms of people saying, you know, I loved the fact that she was the one who was making, you know, who had to come to this realization in the Friends to Lovers books, for instance. Often it's the woman who's pining after the man. And I, I presume it's not like a lovers to friends genre. There is, uh, I don't that think that's as common a trope, but I, you'd see it in something like erotic romance, right? So it starts off very much with a sexual relationship and then it moves into something that's also a romantic relationship in, in addition to the okay. sexual relationship. So I can see that happening. Mm. Um, but yeah, you, you have uh, ways of twisting and flipping the traditional um, roles that somebody would play. You know, we, you see women who are, you know, the heroines in these books who have no interest in a relationship and are very focused on other areas of their lives and mm. sort of challenging that and, and seeing if there's a way that you can reconcile both being... The, the stereotypical one is, right, the career woman who has no time for, for any of this. Seeing if you can satisfy both the career side and this re- romantic relationship as well, and and do that in such a way that she doesn't have to give up all the aspects of her life that she's felt were important. What is the usual age of the protagonists? Is that is that kind of defined by the traditions of the genre? So it depends a little bit. 
when you get into sort of the historical romances and regencies, you're looking at sort of 18 to 26 mm. is typically around that age because that would have been the marriageable age. Although there's sometimes there are, younger, sometimes younger. Yeah. There, although I think a lot of people try to stay away from yeah. that because you know the age of consent is in the U.S. is typically around 18. Although sure. I know in some states that's not always the case. Um, you do see a lot of spinsters in romance, so you'll get some older women, uh, you'll get some widows, things like that. With contemporary, it tends to be a little bit older, sort of you know, mid-20s to mid to late 30s, um, but there are absolutely um, what are called mature romances, so people mm. who are either in, in a, a second romance, second relationship point in their life, or they sort of never met somebody, and so it's their story in their 40s, 50s, 60s, I've seen sort of all the way up the age spectrum. Again, this is coming from a, a slight place of ignorance on my part, but it seems to me because of the the pace of the reading and therefore the, the pace of the writing mm-hmm. and the loyalty and sort of immediate feedback of the readers, that um, it must have to be very responsive to kind of um, social change um, in a way that possibly other genres um, aren't. Do you find that's the case, or is that my assumption? You know, it's it's one of those funny things where I think I wouldn't have noticed it so much until the Me Too movement came up, mm. and there are certain things now where, I, you know, I read workplace romances now, for instance, where it's two colleagues, and I think, I just mm. can't read this anymore because to me it takes on a very different connotation so I think you have to be very careful about the lines that you're walking um, especially in a situation where somebody maybe has a different power dynamic there are some situations where it's a boss and Mm. you know uh, it just to me it feels it feels how does that fit with the historical piece because clearly if you're you know with that the the novel we were talking about earlier where Mm -hmm. this idea of being ruined and so forth that's an idea that's rooted in the social notions of the time I mean not just with your own work but with others is is it generally the idea that you're you know you you are rooted in the historical period in terms of people's relationships or are there some writers it's just a backdrop some writers it's just a backdrop um some people so I probably fall somewhere in the middle I'd like my heroines to have a little bit more agency usually than Mm. a lot of people did and so um I tend to write about women who have jobs so they have some economic uh, mm. ability to stand up on their own not yeah. everybody has a job in my books unfortunately um <laughs> in some cases but you know I've written a lot about governesses and I, I've written who else <laughs> I've written what am I writing recently I I've written about a dressmaker I've written about what's um, your research process I mean how do you go about kind of a lot of it is learned yeah a lot yeah. of it is just things that I've read in college I read really widely um for the world war ii um historical uh, women's fiction that I've just written it was sitting down and plowing through a lot of books. Um, I'm, I'm lucky, especially in this country, a lot of things have been written about uh, the ACAC girls, so the mm-hmm. anti-aircraft um, gunners. Uh, so that, that was a was a really beneficial thing because I got to sort of look at everything from what they would have worn to how they would have you mm-hmm. know been in the dorm, dormitories to what the actual process of operating the um, instruments that would have aimed you know and ultimately allowed a man to fire the gun because by mm. act of parliament they couldn't actually pull the trigger yeah. um but i that that proved to be really useful from sort of talking more about the kind of genre and the industry as a whole we'd like to focus more on kind of like the, the you know the business um mm-hmm. side of things so we um you talked about your 
um, very first books being um, self-published. And we wanted to ask a little bit about that and the kind of contrast with then moving to uh, a publisher and how that works. Sure. I think, um, do you want to talk about what aspects exactly? Maybe you can talk a bit about just how it worked for you. Sure. And then we can, you know, some of the get some of the broader landscape from sure. that as well. So for me, um, I worked with a collective um, for an anthology series first. So You I had, had an agent from the get-go. I had an agent from the mm-hmm. get-go. So while my agent was trying to shop me and while we were trying to figure out the right project for the right publisher, I was also doing some writing on the side for, for this independent publishing. So I, had, I was lucky I had people who had done the whole independent publishing mm-hmm. process before. So, you know, it's everything from getting a cover designer, figuring out who's going to edit and proofread your books um, because those are very different things Mm. there's content editing copy editing proofreading all very different disciplines Um, you know we were passing drafts back and forth a lot of beta reading Um, so we sort of I I took those projects from conception all the way through to actual Mm. publication was that enjoyable having that level of power and control yes but I realized there are some things I enjoy more than others (laughs) cover design is not so were you you kind of running the two tracks simultaneously so you had an agent she's shopping your work Mm -hmm. but you're also doing the self-publish thing at the same time is that helpful or um you know common in this particular industry to sort of get your get your name, as it were, by self-publishing before, you know, a a traditional publisher will will take you on? Yeah, I think it it works for some people. For Mm. me, it was really an exercise of trying to, even if I had 300 readers, they were 300 readers who'd been with me Mm. from the beginning. And so when I did get a publisher, I could then say, hey, these are coming out with this publisher. And Honestly, I don't think my readers care who publishes me. If, mm. I, if I'm self-published, if I'm you know, being published by Simon & Schuster, if I'm being published by somebody else, they just want books, and they want good books that are good quality, that are well-edited. Mm. So you do have to make sure that all those things are, are fulfilled when you're independent publishing. Um, when I went and, and worked with Simon & Schuster at first, um, it was, I think, probably a very traditional... Um, Probably a very traditional uh, approach to uh, to fiction publishing. So I had a draft. I turned it in. My editor did developmental edits. I worked on those. I passed those back to her. We did a line edit. Then we did a copy edit. Then we did uh, proofreading um, pass on on galleys. And sort of through all of this, we were talking about you know marketing and ad sales mm-hmm. and stuff like that, which was very small and very modest for my first books. Um, and then it came out. For publication. How does the sort of the marketing and and um, and that side work in 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 this genre? So I have a marketing team and I have a, pu- a publicity team as well. I have a publicist who's um, actually I think she's staying with me for for the most recent publications. And you as well. retained her, or your publisher retained her? My publisher. So right. she works for my publisher. I could, if I wanted to, hire an independent publicist, and some people do. Um, some people find that valuable. Yeah. I don't think I've reached that point yet where mm. I'm I'm quite ready to let go of that amount of control. <laughs> and in terms of putting the you know, the self publishing side, is it always within ebooks, or are there people just putting this writing on the internet? Uh, you yeah. know, more generally. Absolutely, I think a lot of people got their start in fan fiction, mm-hmm. um, which you know have these massive forums that have been around for you know for years. And yeah. well, that's famously how Fifty Shades exactly, started, exactly, and, and the Twilight series mm-hmm. didn't that start as fan fiction? Fifty Shades twi- fan fiction to Twilight. Yes, yeah, that's right. right. I think Twilight was also maybe uh, Twilight. I'm no. not sure about was that one. Yeah. No, but it's it, my imagination. There's there's been a lot of fan fiction that came out of Twilight. Mm. I think. <laughs> and for those again who may not be familiar with the term, could you explain mm. a bit of what fan fiction is? Sure. So it's co-opting the or borrowing the um, world of another 
creator. So it's often around television shows, movies. Mm-hmm. It could be other books. I've seen that, absolutely. Um, there's gamer mm-hmm. fan fiction as well. And so people are writing stories within that world, but they don't own the characters. They're not typically paid for it. Are there ever copyright issues or things like I'm that? Sure that, that, comes to that? I'm sure there are. I'm sure there must be. And I think that when you, when you look at Fifty Shades of Grey, it's departed enough from Twilight that mm. I think you can... You can draw some similarities but they're they're absolutely within you know they're very careful i'm sure to make sure the intellectual property is is on the right side of legal so mm-hmm. and so for you you then you move do you, do you still sort of publish anything or have you stopped i'm att- i'm attempting to i haven't had a huge amount of time um mm-hmm. but i'm trying to get back into doing some self-publishing so i have two names i'm julia kelly as well as julia blake and julia blake has been the contemporary side of my uh work i've, I've been focusing more on the julia kelly historical work um, for now the historical romance and historical women's fiction so i think i need to be doing something with contemporary publishing mm-hmm. uh, contemporary that's independently published probably although i'm talking to my publisher also mm. about doing some more of the sports romance as well. So sure. we'll see what ends up happening. It's sort of a little bit of an up in the air time right now. I'm at the end of two contracts, which is a big relief and also <laughs> a lot of uncertainty at the same time. Yeah. I think we can both sympathize with you on, you know, yeah. nearing the end of projects. You said that you have um, some friends who are just happily, you know, very happy to continue self-publishing. Mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit about, um, you know, obviously it must be personal preference, but, you know, the different experience and and why someone might then want to join a traditional um, publisher or my, why they might want to stay, um, you know, self-publishing? I think both sides have pros and cons. Mm. Um, and with self-publishing, you obviously are doing everything yourself. So that can either be wonderful if you like that level of control, or it can just be an absolute disaster if that's not something you're good at. It's a lot of project managing. It's a lot of kind of being the person who's hustling. Mm -hmm. There can also be a huge amount of money made there. If your book is successful, you own the rights to that book. You also get the royalty share from, you know, whether that's 35% from Amazon, 70%. You're looking to make a lot more money than you would in, in terms of... Although one thing we've been told by editors in more traditional publishing houses is if it goes wrong for self-publishing, like if it doesn't sell, that you're in some ways, you can't come back. That's the way it's been phrased to us. Is that, in this in this world, is that overly I, dramatic? I'm, I think in the romance world, you can always reinvent yourself. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. There are people with multiple pen names. There are people who've had flaming disasters of careers. There had people who had no sales at a traditional publisher, came out and either changed their name or did their own thing and just mm-hmm. absolutely blew up um, in terms of popularity and, and, and their royalties as well. So I think it's hard to fit a one-size-fits-all um, experience around there. I think the one place where I have seen it potentially hurt somebody in terms of self-publishing is if your numbers aren't particularly good and a publisher's mm-hmm. really on the margins of whether they want to, to sign you or not and they ask for your numbers. And if your numbers aren't there, that can be a really tough um, a tough conversation to have. And can we talk more generally about money? It's something we always try sure. to talk about on the podcast. But clearly this is a huge industry. There's a mm-hmm. lot of these books being sold and so forth. I mean, you know, 
do you make appreciable money from from doing this? Or and, and again, um, like speak and say as much as you want, yes. but we always try and yeah. you know this is something people really care about and really are interested about. So we try and like dive into this. So how much have you guys talked about advances and earning back advances advances and foreign rights? Yeah. Okay, yeah. so so your audience is familiar with that. Yeah. So um, my advances are are definitely on the smaller end, okay. and I'm hoping um, if my editor is listening to this, I'm hoping to bump that up with my next contract. <laughs> um, but Get a hint in here. Exactly. My the nice thing about that is that I'm now waiting for a royalty check from Simon and Schuster. I should be getting mm. it right about now, actually, um, and because it's the month of March, which is mm-hmm. one of my payout months. It means that I can hit my, um, I can earn out my advance a lot faster. Um, foreign rights become very important for that, and I, I are they translated? Uh, they are translated, yes. Yeah. So I'm in Bulgarian, Japanese, and Italian right now, well, uh, which is an interesting mix of languages, <laughs> and. Uh, Foreign rights are this magical thing that I get an email that says, hey, we want to publish you in Japanese. Are you okay with that? Here's the advance money, and this is what you know the timeline would look like. And I email my agent, and I say, I'd like to be published in Japanese, so that sounds great to me. Mm. And uh, then it you know works towards my, my advance in, on the and U.S. side. You said that you, you had a period doing this full-time, but now you have a, have a day job working mm-hmm. in a tech firm. I mean, could you live off your writing at this stage in your career? Not at this point. Mm. So not without massive support from my family. And I just, I felt like... I took seven months to uh, explore whether I wanted to actually write full-time because that's, I think, a dream that a lot of people have. Mm. And then I've had friends who've done that and thought, this is not what I want to do. I'm isolated. I'm at home. I, you know, I've had people have massive um, writer's block after they, because they have these open, open days that Mm. no longer have, you know, you don't have to do your writing within two hours or, you know, before the kids wake up or any of those things. And so I think... I wanted to make sure this was something I actually wanted to eventually do and could do successfully and was able to do that and make that work. So, um, yeah, I've, eventually the plan is to, and I'm very upfront with my boss about this actually, the plan is to eventually support myself writing mm. full-time. But I also know I'm at the beginning of what I hope will be a very long career. So I'm, I'm 32 years old. I've been published by Simon & Schuster for two years. I'm hoping to have a career that extends well into, you know, my 60s, 70s, in my family, probably 80s and 90s. Mm. I mean, we have are, you, know, you, you mentioned again, there are people, particularly in the self-publishing universe, making a lot of money out of this. Is that a tiny fraction, or are there a lot of a lot of writers? And and what and um, how does cumulative books play into this? Mm. Um, how many? Is there sort of a general rule that you need to have sort of several? You know, or yeah, several is, dozen. Backlist is very powerful. Mm. Um, so once you start hitting this, the the old rule I think used to be like seven or eight books. I mm. don't know if that has moved any time. It seems like... Seven books to get what? To, to have a backlist that's yeah. earning for you, yeah. Mm. I think that as in, with everything, publishing has a lot of myth-making about it, and so some of that is true for one author. It's not true for other authors. I know people who it took 12 books before they were, mm-hmm. you know, really feeling like they were successful and, you know, comfortably in the mid-list. And then the question is, can you then break out from the mid-list into the bestseller list, mm-hmm. right? And so I think that... Um, I think that that... There are, there are a small number of people who are making the serious, serious money. Yeah. The big, you know... I think that's the same almost any bit of writing. Exactly. Right? Absolutely. So Nora Roberts is kind of the grand dame of romance, and she's um, well into the millions uh, mm. for, her, for her books and her royalties. She also has written something like 80 or 90 books yeah. at last count, although I'm sure it's more now. 
And um, so she's she's on a different playing field than everybody else. But I think that for a lot of people, they can make a very comfortable income, um, whether it's you know contributing to two families, or I have friends who are who are single and making a very comfortable mm-hmm. income and are able to pay the mortgage and you know buy the second home and things like that. So which is extremely rare for writers mm-hmm. of other sorts of fiction, right? Because mm-hmm. the um, the turnover of, of books is so fast, and they're, they're generally a bit shorter, and um, there are so many of them being written. Um, do you find the books have a shorter shelf life? How do you ensure that readers are finding your books and um, are finding that backlist? That's the magic formula that I think nobody's figured out yet. So it's it's a little bit of everything. So it's a little bit of that backlist being available mm-hmm. and just inviting somebody in and inviting them to get lost in this. We write in series typically, so yeah, get lost in the series, that, right? So typically you get the hero and heroine from book one have a friend or two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or somebody ask, connected. How, how can you, if, if the happy ending is non-negotiable, Yes. and presumably like that marriage can never fall to pieces or anything like that, how do you... How do you manage a series with that? You um, typically write about secondary characters. So, like uh, spin-offs. Yeah, right. spin-offs, okay. exactly. So the people who were in book one have a friend, and that friend gets their own book. And so you also have some instances where somebody will take a relationship and they'll they'll create moments of happily ever after, but it, the overall mm. arc will be over three books instead of one book. Right, okay. So it just it's sort of like episodic in the way that a television show would be. So that's becoming more and more common. Um, but there's absolutely still you know a lot of people who are looking for that single title. Mm. You get the full story within one book. Um, type of approach. And do you, we've asked all the fiction writers we have on the show, do you plan your novels? Or do, I do. you plunge in? I used to plunge in and then I would find about 45,000 words in. Um, I figured out my book and then I would have to go back and edit that. And that's <laughs> okay. a really, really inefficient way to write books. And um, basically, I, when I ended up I, starting to pitch, and I'm, I'm no longer writing so much on spec, I'm basically writing on proposal. Um, that's then that's bought and sold. Yeah. Is that more common in, in? It's much more common in romance. And it so. proposes three chapters and synopsis, or I three pages. So I typically three pages. will. Yeah. So I'll typically write wow. the okay. entire synopsis for the book. So I'll have the book all planned out, um, mm-hmm. but not in great detail. It's more like this is what's going to happen. These are the emotional turning points, and my agent will go to my editor and say she wants to write this, and uh, here are three synopses, and can we do a three-book deal? Mm-hmm. And they'll say yes, no, we'll negotiate various ways. So I've, I've sold two three-book deals and um, two one-offs. So how much work do you have like lined up? How much? How many more books are you commissioned to do at so this stage? So right now I'm finishing uh, the last book in the Scottish historical series, um, and then I have this, uh, this historical women's fiction trade paperback that's coming out. So both of those are in the final stages of... They entered production, so for me it's the final stages of editing. It's not at all the final stages of the book. Um, And then then I'm, I'm kind of in the nice zone where I'm reading a lot and watching a lot of TV and kind of letting things steep a little bit and figuring out what, what I want my next book to be. I have a I have an idea of what I think I'm going to pitch next, mm. um, but we'll see what ends up what ends right. up happening. Could you do a little plug opportunity here and just um, let our listeners know uh, what the books we called and will they be coming out? Sure. So uh, the book that's coming out in June is called The Allure of Attraction, and that's the third book and maybe final book, maybe not, depending on how my mood strikes me, I book in a uh, Scottish historical romance And we'll put these in the show notes as well. We'll Pardon? put these in the notes. Oh, lovely. Um, and then my uh, book coming out in the fall is called The Light Over London, mm-hmm. and that is uh, World War II set, uh, the one about 
the the Gunner Girl, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's and your has, first historical fiction. That's my her- first historical fiction, yeah, and my first paperback. Mm. So. And what what are your sales like? What kind of volume of stuff are you are you submitting? It varies. Um, so sales are always stronger when there are series to link through. Okay. So mm-hmm. I'll see a spike every time there's a book that comes out. Um, I did a book bub. Um, what was it last August and saw you know a few thousand sales off of that which then trickled down to other books in the series as well sure. so um, I mean, what are your helpful. publishers looking for what are targets or for, for this kind of stuff that's a good question I, because I was new and because I was um, also digital it's a little bit of a different um, different perspective mm-hmm. so you're looking for sort of ideally you know five figures um, and and We'll see when my royalty statement comes. However, how are these? How are the ebooks priced? Are they comparable mm-hmm. to pay to actually the, the physical books? They're or? a little bit cheaper. Okay. Um, so, but not drastically cheaper. No. So I, when, we, we, when we had Laura Palmer on from Head of Zeus, who their whole like pitch as a publishing company was they were going to sell ebook only. This in 2012, ebook only stuff for like a dollar or something. Mm-hmm. So it was mm-hmm. way way less. But right. yours are. Like what seventy percent, fifty percent? Yeah, so I'm I'm at for my full lengths four ninety nine typically, dollars um, or... which is dollars, yeah. and uh, that would be seven ninety nine would typically be your price point for mm. uh, romance in the okay. U S. I uh, for the shorter books I'm priced around two ninety nine. Okay. So and that can you know obviously fluctuate based on sales and things like that. Usually there's some discount pricing before a book comes out to get people to buy into the first book in the series if they haven't done that yet. So mm. um, the trade paperback by contrast is I think right now it's marked down to twelve dollars on Amazon originally at sixteen, and the uh, I want to say the ebook is nine ninety nine. And just you know you you just an enormous amount of work and. A- short period of time what is your method or your, your routine or and, your and, rhythm yeah and when do you write I so I, so our record on the show <laughs> is mm. one book in five weeks yeah can oh, you I beat can that so break that <laughs> oh, really? 39 days oh wow really so I wrote The Taste of Temptation in 39 days but continuously while f- continuously after I've been laid no, off from my job that is less while that moving is. from New York to Los Angeles no no that is slightly longer London. five weeks is 30 Sorry. no 39 no. days 39 days Isn't that, I think that's the fastest no, five times seven is 35. Oh, 35? Mm. Okay. You're four days off the pace. Oh, come on. Well, I was moving, so that's my excuse. Okay. Um, yeah, so I did that when moving I was... Moving and working full-time. Pardon? Oh, were you working full-time? No, I'd you... been laid off from my job, um, okay. which was very helpful. And uh, I was... So I had I had decided I was going to move to London mm. um, from New York. I was uh, waiting to get my notice, and I was laid off. And so I was given a severance package to go... Moved to London, which was lovely. So the dream. I, it was the dream. So I had five weeks to basically sit there and write and clean out my apartment and mm. say goodbye to people. And um, so I wrote that book during that period of time. Um, and how long is it? Uh, that one is eighty-five thousand words. Okay, I'm in awe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm in awe as well. Um, do, you, do you tend to write in the morning or the evening or late at night? Clock. So the nice mm. thing about having been a journalist is you can kind of. I find it very easy to turn it on whenever because yeah. that was you know that was television news producing right you need to be able to produce whenever and that's a lot of writing and it's a lot of copy you know writing copy for the voice as opposed to just writing for um writing for for somebody reading in a newspaper which is a different discipline and so i, mm. I do find it easier for instance to write dialogue um than i think i do other areas 
Um, I most recently have been writing at like five o'clock in the morning because I'm working in a new job. And so I come home sort of mentally (laughs) exhausted Mm -hmm. because there's a lot of absorbing this, this new world since I'm no longer in journalism. Um, I normally would write sort of, I come home, run, cook dinner, and then, uh, right after work, I, I write on the weekends. Mm -hmm. I write whenever. And do you, do these go through multiple drafts? They do. Yeah. Yeah. Typically, I'll do a fast draft where I'll try to get everything down, um, sort of using that synopsis that I sold on as a guide so I can remember what it is that I sold. Mm-hmm. And then um, I'll go through and, and do a revision, maybe two revisions if necessary, and then that goes to my agent. And then we start going through the process of going back and forth with the manuscript. And you won one last and you left your journalism job is that are you done with I'm with done journalism? I'm a free I'm a free woman <laughs> I can have I can have opinions in public for the first time in my life um, no I, I felt like it was the right time to leave for me I I had done what I wanted to do and um, yeah I thought you know it, the industry is it's tough and it's unless your heart's completely in it which mine wasn't anymore mm. It's a really tough industry to convince yourself to go out and, and do the work every single day. So I still have a, a lot of friends in journalism and a huge amount of respect for people who do it and think it's a really important, vital part of um, of my my life and has allowed me to be a writer in the way that I am now. But I'm 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 a free woman. So. Hello, it's us again with a swift update from our lives. Cassia, what have you been up to and what have you been reading? What I've been up to? Well, I am still sort of in the finishing phases of my book, which has now got a new, shiny new title. Uh, it's Are you able to disclose that? I am, yes. It's, it's up on um, Amazon, so I think that makes it official. So it's going to be called The Golden Thread, um, and it is going to be um, published in October, and I could not be more excited. Um, so that's, I've, you know, I've mostly been sort of doing all the last minute faffy bits for that, and I'll be looking at artwork, which I love doing. I, this the part that gets me really excited. Um, and then I haven't been reading that much apart from my own book, various drafts thereof, um, but I have been mainlining um, podcasts. So there's a new one from the New York Times um, all about ISIS, which is just riveting I really recommend it Um, and then I've also been listening to Embedded which is about kind of American politics Um, and the most recent episode was about Scott Pruitt and if you can get past the slightly this American life isms of um, the presenter then it's it's well worth listening to. Very good. Um, I have also been doing book work. Uh, I've been working on the afterword, which has been interesting because I haven't quite finished the, the main book itself, but that's been good. Um, I, In terms of reading, I've been reading a, uh, a volume called Spectacle, Reality, Resistance, Confronting a Culture of Militarism, which is interesting and informative. It, does, it doesn't look it. We're, we're currently using it as a stand uh, for our microphone, and I think that's its future role. I think that's an unfair slant upon it, but I am <laughs> looking forward to the day when I can read books that aren't about the British military, and that day is coming soon. Uh, I'm also going to Belgium for a story next week, which should be fun. So, exciting news in both our camps. Anyway, this has been, as ever, Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikum. And me, Cassie Sinclair. Our producers are Ed Kiernan, Liz Davies, and Olivia Krellin. Zara Hankey looks after our social media. 
Our um, graphic design is by James Edgar, and our music is by Jess Danheiser. And you can find us on all manner of social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes. You can find us on Twitter at Take Notes Always, and our website is alwaystakenotes.com. And as ever, thank you very much to the people who have rated us on iTunes, and if you haven't yet done so, please do. You can also um, get in touch with us and ask us any questions or um, let us know any people you'd really like to hear from.